Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $127 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues, Sean Bogda and Paul Ehrlichman. Uh, Sean and Paul are the co-managers of ClearBridge's international value strategy and combined have over 50 years of investment industry experience. And the topic of today's podcast is actively targeting value in international markets. Thank you both for being here today. Great to be here, Jeff. So if you looked at the markets here in 2017, you have seen a distinct shift from U.S. equity outperformance to the international space. And if you were a a contrarian investor, this wouldn't be a surprise to you at all. Actually, if you looked at U.S. institutional investor allocations as of the end of last year, they stood at a 25-year low of 18% allocation versus a historical average of 28%. But if you're looking at growth versus value, you have seen a change of leadership as well coming into 2017. Value, of course, led in the later part of last year. And the baton has been held over to growth so far for the first seven months of this year. So, Paul and uh, Sean, what do you think is going to be the drivers to switch that leadership back into values court? To summarize it very quickly is the world seems to have entered a period of much more balanced growth and much more fundamentally driven uh, markets. Um, so we've seen like 97% of the purchasing manager indices are an expansion. That's, that's huge. So that's broadening growth. The U.S. is actually the most slowly growing economy in the world. Japan's outgrowing wow. uh, the U.S. But my point is that we have the whole world growing. So Italy's starting to grow. Um, all the weak countries, the previously weak countries are growing. Banking systems are healing around the world. So we have this normalization, this broadening, um, and, and that should be very good for companies with operating leverage, cyclicals, as well as the normalization of interest rates, which would be fantastic for banks. And, and let's not forget about valuations, right? Valuations outside the U.S. are way lower than they're here domestically. And, you know, time from time again, sometimes investors will not look at valuations. But as you get into the later innings of a market cycle, which I think we're at here in the U.S., people will look to areas that, that maybe provide a little bit more upside. You know, and, and one thing I'll mention is central bank policy. We do have a divergence here in the U.S. versus the rest of the world where we're clearly in our tightening cycle and the rest of the world is is still easing at a, a pretty extraordinary pace. So, Sean, do you have any comments on central bank policies and how that could play into this dynamic? Well, I think you're already beginning to see some of the effects uh, of the central bank policies right now, where if you look at the U.S., and, and Paul commented that the U.S., of all markets right now, of all uh, major economies, has begun to slow and exhibit you know uh, a much more dramatic slowness than other major economies, whereas you see a pickup in, let's say, for example, Europe, where you've had slowness for quite some time, and now you're beginning to see much stronger economic growth coming through, whether it be in retail sales, labor trends, uh, whether it be economic confidence is back to almost to the uh, pre-global financial crisis highs. So what we're seeing is almost the opposite effect that we've seen over the last several years, where the U.S. was sort of the major engine of growth out there for for, for the better part of the world. And now it's beginning to shift a little bit. And now we're seeing this growth beginning to pick up in Europe. And what are you seeing? Well, we're seeing central bank policy being questioned here in the U.S., 
Now, let me play devil's advocate here with both of you um, and throw out a question. You know, with the two biggest liquidity providers in the ECB or European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan getting towards uh, normalization and, and pulling some of that liquidity out of the, mar- the marketplace, does that give you any concerns uh, about this global recovery that we've been having? What we're going to get now is the velocity of money will pick up. So it's so the velocity of money is much more important to fu- real economic growth uh, than the than the, the, nom- the level of nominal interest rates. And Europe, re- we're seeing some uh, pickup in the auto markets. There, we're just beginning to see and smell infrastructure spending coming in. Um, consumer confidence is up, as I had mentioned earlier, and so we can have this. I don't want to call it the Goldilocks scenario, but there is this catch-up that Europe is beginning to play while you do have the U.S. kind of slowing down, but not egregiously so. And I think it does – and China's always out there as a fear factor uh, that we've constantly coming up every once in a while as a, oh, no, they've got all this debt. And, you know, what's going to happen if if we should see a slowdown in, in major economic growth there? Um, that's been the story that's been playing out over the last five years and, and economic growth continues to be fairly buoyant there. Yeah. Uh, uh, shifting around, of course, but it's been fairly buoyant. And my point being, if you look globally throughout the world, yes, there are pockets of slowness, but then you have emerging growth coming from various areas. And we, we mentioned a little bit about commodity prices and commodity prices have begun to stabilize. Um, they might not be off to the races, but we've seen a strengthening in copper. We've seen a strengthening in steel prices. This is all an indication that demand is fine. Mm-hmm. And we're beginning to see the adjustments of supply that have, uh, have occurred over the last few years. And this is going to play very well into the emerging world. Yeah, I think a lot of people just look at oil and the fact that oil is having a hard time breaking out of the high $40 a barrel range and assuming that all commodities are doing bad. But you have seen this pulse up in industrial metals here uh, over the last couple months. Um, but I know we just talked about Europe a second ago, and that's an area that, that interests me personally um, as an investor. European growth has been outperforming U.S. growth. And this isn't a new phenomenon. It's actually been over the last six quarters. Um, But as you alluded to earlier, Paul, the the growth has been broad-based. It's not just Germany driving the car here. Um, A lot of the countries on the periphery have very strong growth. I mean, Spain is back to its pre-crisis growth range right now. Portugal is seeing retail sales of 5% plus over the last three or four months. Um, The only one that's really actually not coming uh, and having that stronger growth as of yet is Italy. Um, So, Talk to me. I know we talked a lot about the headwinds last time uh, about Europe, the political headwinds, uh, the problems having earnings growth. Talk, talk to me a little bit about the tailwinds in Europe and, and why that's a good place for investment. Well, the balance is really important. We talked about that theme um, and, and that, you know, the beer drinkers, as we call them, versus the wine drinkers. Um, so the peripheral nations are beginning to improve. Um, and that's creating a much more balanced environment because you have this massive uh, current account surplus in Germany and then everyone else had high unemployment and deficits. So what we're, we're seeing is that the consumer economy in Germany is picking up. The export economy is doing fine, but it's stimulating the export economy in Italy. It's helping the economy in Spain. Um, countries uh, – so, so inter-European balances in trade are picking up and, and some of and, – and that the Germans are also beginning – um, to take a more positive attitude towards uh, the rest of Europe because of the French elections. I think one of the 
heads wins that turn to tails wins. There was a lot of worries about anti-Euro far right sure. people being elected. They made a lot of noise and they mostly got kicked out. Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen, um, uh, Rutte in, in the Netherlands, Angela Merkel has consolidated her lead. Um, a lot of the, you know, the alternative for Deutschland party with Frauke Petra has been marginalized. And I mean, these are really marginalized. Um, one, two seats, three seats. Uh, the Greens have a bigger vote than most of these right-wing parties. That's very positive. It creates an environment of cooperation and stability. That's a big change, particularly the Franco-German alliance. The big thing is the end of prey and delay in the banking system because, you know, to pray, you go on your knees, you keep the economy on its knees when you're praying. Um, now they've kind of stood up and said, listen, we're going to fix this and we're beginning to see asset prices clear and bad assets clear. So, you know, you want money to go – when you have an a, a credit crisis, you want the assets to go from the weak hands to the strong hands. Right. That's happening. It's happening in Italy finally. Uh, it, it happened in Spain. Spain's recovery is because of labor market reform and banking reform and allowing asset prices to clear. So those are you know, a, a healthy banking system, asset prices clearing, more balanced growth, uh, really translating into broader economic growth uh, for the first time in a decade. Well, it's, it's important that you say that because usually when those asset transfers happen, it happens during a, a crisis and it's happening right now in front of our eyes in, in front of a, a clear expansion over in Europe. You know, one of the areas in Europe that uh, I think investors are concerned about still, even though a lot of those risks have dissipated, is the Italian banking situation. Uh, over in Italy, uh, about $325 billion, uh, they have in non-performing loans. It's really been uh, an albatross on their banking sector, uh, not allowing the banking sector to give loans to small businesses, which is a really important part of Italy. Um, but with the Italian banking crisis, the biggest... I guess, dynamic that is left unsaid at this point is whether or not the retail investor who has sold these bank bonds over the last couple of years had no knowledge of what the risk was in these bonds. Will they be bailed out um, and be able to not take a full haircut? And I think that's the biggest dynamic that needs to play out. So, Sean, what do you think is going to happen in Italy? I know that we've, we've had some, uh, some recent bank rescues there. Correct. And I think that when you look at the Italian banking system right now, uh, and and this is really kind of not just the Italian banks, but if you look broadly, um, they the European authorities really I think got scared, um, and 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 it, that's also why we saw a major double dip in the economy back in two thousand and two, two thousand and twelve, twelve and twenty thirteen. A lot of people forget that it was a and 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 really when you go back and look at it, it was it, it was a double major double dip. Uh, almost worse than the GFC, frankly. And the authorities at that point in time realized that either we get together and have a, a more of a blanket policy uh, regarding the banking system here, or we're going to have this issue arising on a consistent basis. And this is, ironically, it's policy that is shifting. And this is, I'm, I'm speaking broadly because it's it's not just Italy that becomes affected it becomes the Portuguese banking system it's becomes because they're all together at the end of the day as we've noticed and uh, when you look at the politicians and 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 Europe has been a special case uh, longer term because the banking system has been the center of distributing capital throughout the economies in Europe whereas here we have the free and not free and open markets but the the bond market here with corporate uh, corporates going into the bond market, we have uh, various different levers um, that help move capital around, whereas you haven't traditionally had that in 
Europe. So the banks are responsible for bringing corporate debt to market in Europe is the a key difference? Yeah, I think that, that is, has been a major difference. And so the tie-ins with the corporate sector, with the banking sector, has been much higher than what we have here in the U.S. And so the banks were really directing where capital would be, and the banks were very tied in with the politicians. And so when you have that dynamic, you don't really get a fluid policy. And now, ironically, the politicians are slowly having to give up, given the direction that we're moving with the banking system in and the regulations within Europe. We're moving to a system where the politicians aren't going to necessarily have, uh, the bureaucrats aren't going to be able to dictate necessarily where this policy is going. And you're going to have actually a more robust banking system. And probably, and I think as, as a result of that, you're going to have a much more robust economic system within Europe that's going to evolve over the next five to 10 years as a result of the policies that they're putting in place right now. Um, and I think that that's, and I'm talking not necessarily about the Italian situation per se, but it's going, it's affecting the Italians, it's affecting the Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, it's affecting the entire Eurozone. So ironically, from this crisis, we're going to have a much stronger Eurozone economic policy going forward as to put, and it, it really, it, we needed this to test the Euro and to test this, this experiment, so to speak. And uh, I think what we're being, we're, we're seeing right now is the beginnings of what is probably going to be a very strong uh, period of economic growth within the Eurozone. So also thinking about Europe, um, where in Europe do you guys find the best opportunities right now? Is that Germany? Are you finding it in the periphery? Um, where do you think is the best value? Well, there, there is a, um, um, a bit of the shift uh, from a standpoint of where some of the laggards and, and where a contrarian would look. Um, we see some value in, in many of the domestic demand plays, which include the banks, but, if, but also think about not just retailers, um, but travel, leisure, hotels. Um, and, and so there's a focus a bit more uh, in, in, our, in, in the ideas that we're seeing as most attractive that have lagged is, is there's not yet – people are not well positioned yet and generally investors for a strong domestic economy. They understand German exporters. And, and frankly, the German exporters are fine, but, but they're up a lot and, and the euro is strengthening. So they may have some headwinds. So we do think that there's this opportunity to rotate in, in Europe and focus a bit more on some of the more domestically oriented companies. And, and I think employment agencies, construction, housing, uh, auto distributors, those kinds of companies that benefit from uh, improving uh, uh, activity within Italy, within Spain, because that's where that's where all the surprises are, and that's where we're seeing the dynamism. It's the German exporters have always done fine, and there's and we own a couple. There's nothing wrong with them. They'll benefit from a global recovery, um, but the real value uh, and and opportunity is in those domestic demand plays. Yeah, I would think with a strengthening euro, um, a lot of the German exporters are going to have that headwind that they're going to have to deal with as their com their goods are going to be higher priced with all of their markets. And we, yeah, we see it. I mean, you do if you look at the relative performance of a Siemens. Um, uh, nothing wrong with the company, um, but but it's just it's just rolling over a bit relative to the industrials, uh, even the industrials in Japan, but but many of the other domestic demand plays in in Europe. So there's a there is definitely a switch going on within Europe. I know you guys have been banging the drum on financials, and I know you found quite a number of attractive financials uh, within the European Union. Um, is there any one that that comes to mind as a one that illustrate your process of having trying to find a good opportunity for the portfolio? So we've had uh, 
we originally started investing in the European financials, uh, you know, during the crisis. And what we found, well, number one, I mean, being a value manager, obviously, when you start to see companies trading uh, at, at, at less than book value, um, we have to start taking a look. Uh, it's just that's, you know, it's in our DNA to look at cheap assets. Uh, and the, so, number one, the valuations were very attractive to us. And we realized that when do you get your best returns? Well, you, you, you kind of want to buy when there's, uh, you know, the blood in the street scenario and you sell when the trumpets are out. And, uh, you know, certainly there's enough concern regarding the overall banking system within Europe that um, having, you know, been doing this now for over 20 years, you see these types of cycles come and go. And this was the same as we've seen in a lot of the emerging markets. Um, in the past where people can, are concerned about the banks and, and you say, okay, well, when do you want to buy a bank? Well, when it's basically insolvent. And we, that's when we decided, okay, these are probably some great assets to go in. And so whether it be a Banco Santander or a BNP in France, uh, we've looked at and we've invested recently in the Italian banking system as well. Um, and, and these are really some world-class banks in, in, in the past. We think they'll be world-class banks in the future. They're obviously having some difficult times at the present, but we're beginning to see signs of loan growth is beginning to pick up. Uh, net interest margins aren't necessarily climbing too much yet, but we think that that will occur as we've, as we've been talking about. And uh, you've seen the loan losses are coming down. So there's a lot of positive signals that are coming through from their numbers. Consumer credit right now is hitting a ten, hit a 10-year low in 2015 in Europe. And we're almost back to um, the pre-global financial crisis high. We're beginning to see a pickup in lending. Uh, and with confidence being restored, people don't want to go out and you know, do much when they're unemployed or they're fearful of their job. And what we're seeing right now is in, in Europe is the opposite, that people are, you know, unemployment uh, is improving. We're beginning to see that confidence coming through in retail sales. And that's is all going to, to, to go into the banking system is going to say, okay, well, people want to buy homes. They want to, to, to take investments. Uh, and lending is, is, is picking up as a result of that. So uh, we think that there's, this is just beginning to happen. And uh, we think, you know, I, I mentioned a few banks there, but we, we feel very strongly in, in, in the periphery economies, especially uh, and, and given where the valuations are and, and the shape of the banks. Yeah, investing 101 is you never want to buy something after the move has happened. You want to buy something when you start to see the catalyst or the change in that move. And it, it appears that it's evident for European financials and, and banks in particular. So I know another area that you look at extensively uh, is emerging markets. Um, are there any areas of the world that you're you're finding good opportunities in right now? So so in EMs, um, it's, it has been a place where value this year has really not been working because within emerging markets, they've also been infected a bit with the FANG disease where it's been, you know, Alibaba and JD.com and Tencent. Um, so um, uh, CLSA just did a great chart and analysis of this showing that relative earnings growth is booming in emerging market value stocks and relative price is, is continuing to fall. That kind of gap is exactly what we search for, where the fundamentals, as you say, the catalysts are turning up and no one cares because they're distracted by some shiny object like a social media company um, that's doing very well, but it's not a value stock. And, and we're finding companies that are actually growing well. Um, Brazil, 
uh, is an interesting place where the economy has really faced some headwinds. Political you mean, blood in the streets. I mean, blood there, in the streets. Uh, there are, we're not going to Venezuela where there actually is actual <laughs> blood in the streets. But, you know, when you're having presidents indicted one after another and um, uh, and interest rates have been very high, uh, interest rates are coming down in Brazil. We're be- we just began to – for the first huge. time. But we just saw a little tick. If you look at the chart, it's this little tick of uptick in employment. Um, so domestic demand plays in, in Brazil look interesting. Uh, Banco Itaú, so so a great bank, a world class bank in a horrible place. You always that's a great idea. Um, but things like Duratex, uh, Qualcorp, uh, construction companies um, uh, like Even, uh, they, they look fantastic. Um, China is is very interesting to us, uh, continuing to grow. I think it's interesting to everybody. Well, it's it's everyone t- keeps saying it's going to blow up, uh, and and our view is is that you have too many Western old Anglo-Saxon guys like me that don't understand Eastern culture very well, worried about it blowing up, and and what you have is a very yin yang situation in China where there's lots of really bad things they have to deal with that are painful. But there's also a reward and a good side. And, and we've been trying to obviously invest on the good side, strong consumer demand. Um, so we, you know, we don't own coal companies and steel companies that are being put out of business. We own retailers, uh, sporting goods companies. Banks there look fantastic as they're, as they're dealing with their banking system and starting to, to form uh, what we would call um, market-driven um, um, lending um, uh, institutions. Um, so China – and, and Earnings just grew 26% year over year. The consumers wow. growing at about 10, 11% year over year. Those are big numbers. They created um, uh, 14 million jobs. Um, but the point is that they're creating jobs um, and they're moving up in value added as well. Um, so there's this, there is this serious, painful transition in China, but there's also this very great improvement in the quality of growth there. And, and, and not to really kind of miss another point is the fact that Europe has been slow for a while. And China, one of China's major trading uh, partners is just the core of Europe. And as you begin to see Europe picking up, exports from China into Europe will pick up. That will also, uh, you know, lead in that tie-in of it will strengthen growth coming out of Europe Mm -hmm. because you have, you know, just that virtuous cycle of positive feedback loop. Exactly. And you're going to see that coming out of China as they're one of their bigger trading partners begins to see some some stronger growth. So, uh, you know, there's another tie in and I hate to, you know, always kind of come back to Europe a little bit. But, uh, you know, it is a big economic region equivalent to the U.S. And um, if you have that big engine beginning to, to roll a little bit, then that will certainly contribute to helping out, uh, you know, further economic growth in China. Yeah, the, the, the feedback loop that you mentioned is a great point because you see it in like the luxury goods companies. So they, 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 the Chinese buy a lot of luxury goods made by European companies and a lot of those luxury goods are manufactured in China. When that, that collapsed, when that collapsed um, due to the anti-corruption move and just the, the, the collapse in, in growth in China and people pulled back, um, it hurt Europe, it hurt China. Um, and now demand is coming back. So you're seeing the luxury goods companies in Europe do well. The Chinese travel to Europe to shop there. Um, so hotels, tourism, everything's improving. And of course, the, to the degree those goods are made and shipped through Hong Kong and, and made in China uh, and throughout Asia, it, it really – you can see this, this whole velocity multiplier engine uh, is beginning to work and you really see it between China and Europe. So I know that uh, you have the ability um, to talk 
invest in every size company that's out there, from the mega cap companies all the way down to the small cap companies. Um, with the value and the philosophy that you apply to that process, what do you uh, key differences do you look at in approaching those stocks in particular? I know the valuation process can't be the same for every company out there. When I look at, you know, a business is a business is a business. Um, larger companies are basically a conglomeration of a lot of smaller companies. That's normally how most big companies get to where they are. They buy up little smaller companies and add products, add distribution throughout throughout the world or throughout their region. Uh, so when we look at larger companies and smaller companies, it really comes down to what is the value of the you know, stream of cash flows over time. And we, we strongly feel that that is ultimately what a business is going to be worth, uh, discounted back to present day. And that, that gives you some sort of an idea is where is it trading relative to, to the value of these cash flows. Small businesses are easier to evaluate in a lot of ways because you don't have as many moving parts. You just have one or two products uh, or, or multiple products, but you just have really a, a one business line, for example. And larger companies have a lot of things going on. And, and, and ironically, there's a lot more that can go wrong. So oftentimes when you invest in, and, and oftentimes we're, bu we're buying into companies that need to go through some change. And uh, even small companies need to go through some change occasionally. Smaller companies sometimes can be easier because there's less to have to get through. There's less bureaucracy to have to cut back. Uh, whereas in a bigger company, you can have a lot of that bureaucracy. You have long-term contracts that you have to get out of and, and things that can really eat away at the business. And you're constantly having you hear about the next quarterly uh, disappointment or write down, what have you. Whereas small companies are able to kind of get in and get it done within a, a couple of quarters. It may take a little bit of time, but normally after a few quarters, you begin to see the transition. And so when we're looking at and evaluating small companies, it really comes, the management is extremely important because they can really, the top level management can have a, a, a big effect on a small company. Looking at small caps in particular, is it a local story? Is it a regional story? Um, you know, how do you find these undervalued companies? The plus and minus is it's very idiosyncratic. So, so we 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 uh, there's and there's more of them. So there's about our, our small cap universe is about sixty percent larger than our all cap universe. So there's more of them. Unfortunately, um, we have this great elimination process that takes about ninety five percent of them out. Um, but we do manage uh, uh, the portfolios we manage in small caps. We take a bit more of a diversified approach because of those idiosyncratic risks. You know, think think about a single brand, a single product in a single region. And that gets to your comment about being local. Um, the great thing about uh, smaller cap companies is you tend to get that international diversification you want. I mean, Unilever or Procter & Gamble, is that diverse, international diversification? No. no. But you go into some local Italian deli operator, you're getting a pretty local play. Or you go into a company that, that, that basically is just in the region, just in Asia, just in China. In other words, we, so we own uh, um, an apparel, an athletic apparel company that just sells in China or one that just sells in Australia, New Zealand. Um, so you can get very local and you get a tremendous benefit. In fact, sometimes um, we find companies that offer products and services that just don't exist outside of that local market or 
don't exist yet. And, and so um, when you look at companies like Macmillan Shakespeare where you've got this quirky little perk system in Australia where you get a car and you get different perks as part of your compensation, someone has to manage that. Well, this is a great company that manages that. The same thing with QualiCorp in Brazil. They have some quirks related to how you buy health care and get health care and benefits. When talking about this expected growth versus this embedded growth, it, it, to me, it, it goes back to the whole active-passive debate. You know, I've been having quite a number of conversations about active versus passive. It's a very hot issue, yes. It is hot, and I think it's going to be prevalent over the next couple years. And uh, I know it's something that's prevalent in the international space as well. So with your active approach, I know we talked about the differences in embedded versus perceived growth rates. Um, You also have something that you, you focus on in your process, which is elimination. How does that give you an advantage over your passive counterparts that are out there? Well, I'll just I'll just state three things, and then Sean chime in, or and we can discuss this. Um, so I think that that right now the advantages we see for active, particularly related to our process, which is really highly selective. So you're talking about taking ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the world out, looking for that rare gem. Um, but but I think we're right now active managers are better prepared for these trend changes we're talking about because these are pretty profound these these this it doesn't sound profound to say the world's going to have more balanced growth and driven by fundamentals but if you realize we haven't been in that environment for 20 years it's a profound change that means the current leadership the momentum the where most people have their money because it's been the most rewarding places mostly bonds that's not going to work well active managers are better at discerning that at times of change um, momentum is, is a very popular factor. Momentum is just imitation behaviorally, right? We don't imitate. Our process doesn't allow us to imitate. It drives us to places where people aren't. That's very important. I also think generally stocks are highly valued. You hear a lot of bears talk about that. So do you want to own the average stock when stocks are highly valued in general? Uh, we're not at the 2009 lows anywhere. Um, so we're better at discerning you know, picking those spots where there's value. And then the third thing is that we can build portfolios that are not just bond surrogates. The worst performing factors this year, and I think for a long time, are dividend yield and low volatility. We can build portfolios that do well if interest rates rise and the yield curve normalizes. Um, and, and we can find those undervalued companies that exist and not just by the average valuation. And then we can be prepared for a significant change in leadership. And I think, uh, you know, study after study has shown that rising interest rates uh, is a way that you start to see lower correlations, more dispersion between sectors and individual stock names. And with the ECB getting close to tapering and the Bank of Japan getting close to increasing long yields as well, um, that could be the catalyst that really plays into Active's hand. I, I think a lot of people forget that when you buy a passive index, you're buying not only the good companies, but you're also buying the bad ones as well with, with worse fund and mon- fundamentals. Well, that's all the time we have here for today. I uh, appreciate both of you for, for joining me here in the studio. Um, I appreciate everybody for listening. And um, it, the takeaways here is that uh, International is looking poised to outperform the U.S. And we could see that shift back to value here um, as we meet, read, come into the second half of the year. So thank you for joining Uh, We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of August 10th, 2017, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be forecast of future events, a guarantee of future events, or investment advice. 
Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.